I do think that's interesting that that's that you say that maybe we may even know more for our culture than for our value prop. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. It started in business school, as many great ideas often do. Two executives from completely different backgrounds began a conversation in the early 2000s. A conversation that continues to this day. Their thesis was simple. Consumer buying habits had changed, but the way we marketed to consumers had not. Brian Halligan, a tall, lanky, diehard Boston sports fan with an engineering degree, and Darmesh Shaw, a shy, introverted computer science whiz, began collaborating on a software project that would help companies market differently to customers. More human. And so HubSpot was born. In 2006, in a small office jammed with a handful of programmers and customer support staff, HubSpot soon became a hot commodity in the tech world. Its Cambridge, Massachusetts office was teeming with young talent from Ivy League feeders down the road. Then, in 2014, the company's IPO opened at $25 per share. Today, HubSpot has nearly 70,000 customers, 2,000 employees, and trades at around 180. Join me as we discover how HubSpot has grown for good and how their focus on culture has influenced the tech world. Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with high-profile corporate executives who lead by example to answer the age-old question, can you do well by doing good? I'm Jed Morey, CEO and founder of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of the social justice podcast Newsbeat, and the host of Grow for Good. I'm joined today by co-founder and CEO of HubSpot, Brian Halligan. Brian, thank you for Thanks. agreeing to be with Thanks us. Thanks for having me. So this is a bigger deal than usual for us, as you know, because our agency is actually a Diamond HubSpot partner agency, and uh, we've been following you and your co-founder, Darmesh, for several years. So there's a temptation for us to kind of veer into some inside baseball here, but I'm going to do my best to stay focused. So let's just start with some of the basics before we get into the meat of Grow for Good. Uh, and if you don't mind, if uh, for those that may have heard of HubSpot but haven't really had a chance to interact with it uh, and don't necessarily know much about just the concept of inbound marketing that you really established, can you just give a brief description of HubSpot as a platform and HubSpot as the company it is today? Sure. HubSpot started out as an idea, and the original idea wasn't a software platform. It was an idea on how to market better. Back in 2006, my co-founder and I, I was working at a venture capital firm trying to help these startups grow, and they were all doing very traditional marketing. and They're buying lists and uh, cold calling, hiring telesales reps uh, like crazy. They were emailing people like crazy. They were doing big trade shows. They were advertising. And I just noticed that it didn't seem to work that well, that humans seemed to be really good at blocking it out, whether that's caller ID or ad blocker or spam protection, like it's just impossible to reach humans anymore. And then my co-founder, Darmesh, we were in school together. He blogged his way through business school and he didn't have any budget on his blog and it was just him. And he blogged about interesting topics in business school. And sure enough, I was watching his blog and comparing him to uh, my wealthy venture-backed startups. And he had a million times more interest than his little tiny blog that he wrote between classes. And we started referring to what the traditional way of marketing is, outbound interruption-based marketing, and the way Darmesh did it as inbound, matching the way you market with the way people buy, pulling people in from Google, 
pulling people in from the blogosphere and so forth and so on. And then we started espousing very similar to this podcast that instead of renting space on someone else's site for an ad and renting it in a magazine or a newspaper, even an online site, just create your own content, you know, create really good quality written content, a blog, podcast, video content, instead of renting space from somebody else, like build your own audience and be your own publisher. And lo and behold, that still works very, very well today. Rather than advertising on someone else's podcast, I think you're better off building your own podcast and building your own audience. The truth of it is, back then, doing a podcast was expensive. Uh, Building a podcast really was buying a radio station. That's how you do this kind of thing. It was very expensive to buy a radio station. Creating a newspaper was very expensive. You had to get printing presses and actually print stuff out. Starting a TV station was very, very expensive, bandwidth and whatnot. And it's just dropped the cost to, to, to do that kind of thing. It's dropped dramatically with podcasts, videos, and, and blogging. And uh, it all kind of came together with this, this whole new way to market to match the way people buy, pull people in through Google blogs, social media. Then we started a software company to help people do that. And uh, it's gone real, real well. We got about 70,000 customers. We got a few thousand great partners like you guys that we're super proud of as well. And how many employees do you have now? Probably 3,300-ish employees. In how many countries? Um, 10-ish. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. You are a big technology company now. You know, sometimes we refer to our clients, we talk about HubSpot. Used to be best-in-class marketing automation tools that you could use to, you know, grow your marketing presence and, and hopefully enhance your sales funnel. But now HubSpot is a, is a platform. It is a fully baked, fully developed platform with a, a rather robust partner network, adding great, useful APIs and tools to the platform seemingly every single day, making HubSpot as a platform easier to use and able to go deeper into an organization and accomplish more functions. We actually refer to it as a business operating system, more so even than in selecting tools on behalf of our clients. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution to platform from tools, disparate tools that that helped companies? Sure. I actually think the arbitrage opportunity in the internet, there was, there's been two. One was that ability to create content and get found in Google, doing stuff like this, content marketing, inbound marketing. I, if I look out in the landscape and see who's being really successful today and I look at the industries being you know, upended, it's remarkable the amount of disruption happening in the economy. There are thousands of competitors in every industry. Like you go to Amazon and you search on toothpaste or sunglasses or whatever you want, and there's tons of competitors. In the marketing software space, there's 8,000 marketing software companies out there. There's just been a massive influx of competition. And the ability for companies today to start and become a competitor in a space is actually become quite easy. In the software industry, AWS is relatively cheap. You start at almost zero. You rent office space by the month at WeWork or one of their competitors. And you don't even really need office space. You can work from your home now. Uh, you buy software like HubSpot and it's rented software. You don't have to... Uh, you have to purchase it. Just the barrier to entry in any business, whether it's a software business or hardware business, has dropped. And so the thing that I wrestle with is not how do you start a company, but how do you turn your startup? You've got the product market fit. You've got something interesting there, but you've got a ton of competition. How do you turn that startup into a scale-up? How do you break free? And I've noticed that the disruptions that seem to be happening in given industries 
almost aren't as much about product disruptions, although that's part of it. That's kind of table stakes. They're more on business model and go-to-market disruptions. So if I just take myself, like my morning routine, I woke up this morning on a Casper mattress, like a lot of you probably listening on the phone. I put on my Warby Parker glasses. I picked up my phone and I turned on the Grateful Dead on my Spotify applications. I shave with my Dollar Shave Club razor. I put on my Trunk Club outfit and I took a lift to work. All of those companies are pretty new. They're, they've only been around for a few years. They're all getting huge. And they all sell the same damn product as their predecessor. Uh, Casper mattress is the same basic mattress as every other mattress. My glasses are pretty similar. I listen to the same music on Spotify as I used to listen to in the old school Apple Music. I shave. It's pretty much the same razor. They just made it much easier to buy, much easier to return, much better service. The innovation is more on the business model and really leveraging the internet in new ways. And so HubSpot itself, we've evolved our, our offering to help people with that new arbitrage. So we want to help people build a better website, better marketing, better sales, better service. We built a platform to enable these companies to build a disruptive go-to-market, to disrupt their industry with unbelievable marketing, sales, and service. So that's kind of what we've been up to, and we've spread our value prop out. And so we're kind of the partner for people. If somebody wants to grow, somebody wants to leverage the internet, they've got a choice. They can go buy like 50 pieces of software from 50 different vendors and pull their hair out, uh, trying to pull off that together, or buy from HubSpot and use our software and plug in our partner software. And we just make it really, really easy to create super disruptive, powerful go-to-market experiences. Kind of what we're up to these days. You're a high-tech company and you're a public company now. You have uh, thousands of employees and in markets all over the world. And in tech, this idea about, uh, you know, that I think most of us have about being in quote unquote tech, it's extremely competitive. And yet you somehow managed to maintain a warm, positive and transparent culture. And in many ways, HubSpot seems to stand as counter friction to the, the typical cutthroat tech company, Silicon Valley inspired zeitgeist that we all have in our minds. Has this been difficult for you to maintain as you've grown? No one's asked me that before. Uh, no, it's just felt like uh, very natural <laughs> uh, from day one. I think my co-founder and I sort of had a similar view of the world and a similar view of how we wanted to build a company. We've always looked at it, had a very long-term view of it when we started the company. We had both had some success prior to HubSpot, so we weren't looking for a quick hit or to flip the company or anything like that. We said, we're in it for the very, very long haul and would like to build something uh, that we've, we've said over and over that our grandkids would be proud of. And so that's kind of been our guiding light. And I think that's helped having a super, super long-term perspective. I will say one of the interesting things about HubSpot, like different companies are focused on different things. Some companies are very customer-focused, very employee-focused, or very investor-focused. Historically, we were super employee-focused. Uh, I would even say the first 10 years of HubSpot, we spent a lot of time in our management meetings talking about the employees, how to increase and improve that value prop to employees, make us a more attractive employer, a stickier employer. Over the last three years, we've, we've made a, an explicit shift to be much more customer-focused and spending our entire time in our management meetings talking about not even how we acquire customers in a more efficient way, but how do we delight our customers and increase the word of mouth. So we're really shifting from an employee-based culture, and we still, of course, take care of our employees, and our employees do great work, but that's sort of built into our DNA. We built a new type of DNA that I think is 
much, much, much more customer focused and product focused than it has been before. And that's, that's been a key to taking us, you know, from, you know, hundred million in revenue to, you know, 700 million, whatever we are now uh, in revenue, that's been key. It's been a big cultural shift over the last couple of years. So you published a book in 2010 with David Meerman Scott titled Marketing Lessons yes. from the Grateful Dead. Our producer, Sage, uh, full disclosure, I'm sure you sensed her coming into the building today. She's a fellow deadhead. So <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the force awakened within you that she was here. Um, Hi, Sage. <laughs> so in the foreword of the book, Bill Walton, basketball legend, and pause for a moment. Oh, my God. Bill Walton <laughs> wrote your foreword, which had to be trippy. He even references the concept of doing well by doing good. And then later, you actually dedicate an entire chapter to giving back to the community. Can you talk about how this ethos has inspired HubSpot over the years? And how specifically do you see HubSpot doing good in the world? No one's really ever asked us about this. I will say one thing about Bill Walton. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about non sequitur on Bill Walton. He is one of the loveliest humans I've ever come across. He's, right? he's like from a different planet. He's the most genuinely happy, and he doesn't do drugs or alcohol, genuinely happy, grateful, loving, sentient being. He's just a wonderful human being. I've got to know him well over the years. Just, I love him. He's fantastic. He's an inspiring figure in my life. Uh, I will tell you a funny story, but Bill likes to talk. He's a real talker, and he's a radio, he's a TV broadcaster, and he can go. I mean, pull the string and he goes. And so when I first approached him about doing this, because I knew he was a big deadhead, we had two two-hour-long phone conversations about the book and whatnot to see if kind of checking him to see if I was really a deadhead or not, and <laughs> whatever I was, I was qualified to do it. And at the end of it, I my ask to Bill was I wanted a blurb for the back cover of the book. You know, in the back cover of books, you get blurbs, and I want I really just needed a sentence from him. And so at the end of the first two-hour conversation is like, would you be open to giving me a blurb in the back of the book? Seems like this is right up your alley. Say, yeah, 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 no problem. Another two-hour conversation. Would you be open to putting a blurb on the back of the book? You say, oh, yeah, no problem. I was like, I just need a sentence. Uh, you want me to write you a few sentences? You can pick it. He's like, no, 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 I'll write me out. And I'm coming up on the deadline from the publisher. And so I email Bill like, oh, I'm coming up with the deadline. How's it going on the sentence? And he said, I'm still working on it. <laughs> Just to reiterate, we need a sentence. He's like, yep, I'm working on it. And about a week later, he sent me three pages, uh, which is kind of classic Bill. The three pages were better, I think, than the book. I think the forward is actually the best part of the book, Bill's part. And so I said, well, we can't put three pages on that cover. Why don't I just turn it into a forward? And he said, sure, that sounds great. That's awesome. That's my Bill Walton story. Uh, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> HubSpot. Um, doing good in the world, inspiring uh, some change and building on the idea of the, uh, the tagline that you've introduced the last year or so, of grow better. What is the good that you see your company has kind of organically inspired? Well, we, I will say we changed our tagline a couple of years ago to uh, helping millions of companies grow better. And I think there's lots of ways to grow. You can grow in a cutthroat way. Uh, you can grow at the expense of the environment. You can grow at the expense of your customers. Uh, you can grow in lots and lots of ways. Uh, you can grow in ways that are kind of bad for the internet by cold calling people, 
by spamming people, by doing crappy ads on the internet. We wanted people to grow better. There's a better way, more sustainable way to grow. And it started with our marketing, you know, create remarkable content and pull people in, don't interrupt them with cold calls and spam and stuff like that. But it extends to growing through a remarkable customer-friendly experience that pulls people in and moves them into customers, delights those customers and creates a flywheel of growth uh, for your business that will sustain you over the long haul. So that's kind of why we come up with Grow Better um, as a new way to grow. And I think lots of people, and there's lots of examples of companies who do this kind of thing, we want to enable more and more companies to do that. And we do it because, yes, we like the tagline. It motivates us to come to work every day, and we want to do that. We also just think economically it's the right way to do it. Yeah. So let me pivot to something that just given what what most people understand about you might seem a little uncomfortable. You're routinely ranked personally as one of the most admired CEOs in the world now. You've reached number two and comparably recently. I think you're number one uh, with a 96% plus rating on Glassdoor as great place to work. And something that struck me during your keynote speech at Inbound this year was when you recounted interviewing several of the top CEOs and entrepreneurs in the world. Uh, you kind of took to the road. You, you did this world tour and met with some really extraordinary people, and you put them in the spotlight at your biggest event. And it almost seems like you still don't even realize that you're also <laughs> the most, one of the it's most extraordinary. It's a little hard to believe. It's, so it, <laughs> it has to be to a little believe, surreal to you, surreal, right? I mean, can you, can you describe, like, you, I know you, you use the, you know, you put your Warby Parker glasses on and you shave like everybody else, but can you just personally describe a little bit of this journey and how surreal it must be to be in this position? First of all, I think it's a kind of ludicrous that anyone would rank me in ahead of you know, Jeff Bezos, Satya Nadella, or these folks who created much bigger companies with much bigger impact on their communities uh, and their customers than I have. So I'm very surprised that I, I'm on these lists. It doesn't seem, when I look at it, just I'm number two, like I don't, I don't really buy that. <laughs> it seems kind of silly. Well, it's a wide, wide set of data points. Uh, I guess. Uh, I would just say for me personally, it's been a journey from just two of us starting the company to 3,300 people. The one thing about both Darmesh and I is we are learners. Uh, we're constantly seeking input and constantly seeking to get better and constantly trying to reinvent ourselves and our company. One of the ways we do that and one of the ways we get input is once a year, uh, we take our management team on a field trip to typically to actually every time to San Francisco, Silicon Valley. And we pick a topic and we go very deep on that topic. So for example, one year we went and we said, we want to learn about freemium light touch go-to-market models. So we visited Google, we visited Dropbox, we visited DocuSign, Atlassian, companies like that. And we asked people very kindly to, for, to take the meeting. And almost everyone says yes, which is lovely that they do. Oftentimes the CEO will join. And the way we do the meetings is the whole team will go there. One person asks the questions, another person takes notes because we don't want to really miss a thing and we feel weird uh, recording it. And we'll just kind of plow through a set of questions and learn as much as we can. And then we'll go from company to company. We'll talk about it at dinners, whatnot, and then we'll come back. We'll pull together the notes and pull together the discussions. And we'll try to take the macro learnings of it and learn about it and implement that stuff. And so we did that three, four years ago. And then we put in our freemium go-to-market model. We just learned a lot from that process. And we do that every year. That's a really good place we learn. 
another place for me personally is once a year, HubSpot's board of directors gives me an annual review. And the way we do it's a little bit unusual. Uh, Darmesh, my co-founder, does my review every year. He oh, does, oh, God. And he does it. It's a 360. <laughs> and he's super introverted, so he doesn't sit and talk to anyone. So he sends a survey out to about 25 people, all the board members, senior execs, frontline employees, partners, like he hits a bunch of people. And he says, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer Brian Halligan as CEO of HubSpot? And the second question is, why? And people write novels in there. <laughs> they write novels. And then Darmesh takes it all. It takes him a while to do this. And he pulls it into a document. And last year, it was 31 pages long. The first oh, 16 pages were... Uh, Brian Halligan's features. So it was sort of like a uh, product document. Here, here are the, whatever it is, 16 different things that people think are your good qualities. You're passionate, whatever they are. And I just think I'm fantastic reading that first 16. I got it nailed. This is easy, easy, the CEO thing. And then the last 15 pages are your bugs. Here's all the things people are complaining about that think they need to improve on. And it is very, very, very helpful. Uh, it's a little depressing reading that. And I typically, you can't fix all your problems. And actually, some of your bugs and features are related. Like sometimes your passion is a real positive, but sometimes you're so passionate, you kind of upset people or blow them away or they're whatever. So I pick three or four of those every year and I just try to lean in and get better. And I write myself like a document and a plan on how I can improve. And so we're just genetically coded to be unsatisfied and want to improve and get better. It's part of, the, part of the journey that makes it fun and interesting. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. So since you refuse to talk about yourself or uh, how you think you're positively impacting others, um, which we anticipated, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease something up for you. It's what we briefly discussed uh, prior to the show about uh, the purpose here is we, we want to put something out into the universe to give people who lead companies, run companies, or aspire to a window into the thought process of the people who are leading the change as we see it and as we interact with it today. So Grow for Good usually examines two distinct corporate profiles. Uh, one is the company that is founded on a, let's say, a sustainable or responsible proposition. You can think renewable energy or healthcare, uh, but they have a profit motive. And the other is a company that's organized for profit purposes but more so identified by the good deeds that they do. And that's where we spoke about like a Patagonia as example, or perhaps a Ben and Jerry's where they, they almost take on their corporate responsibility initiatives, almost take on a life of their own and become the brand. So for me, being as close as, uh, as we all are to HubSpot, uh, there's something a little different about HubSpot when you're in it and you're, uh, you have the ability to, to touch it. And that's about healthy culture and, and this idea of putting your employees first and then working assiduously to put your clients first. And the way that you treat your people with kindness and with empathy, do you think that you have now had maybe a bigger impact 
as HubSpot than you might even have thought about because other corporations now have to be competitive with this idea of empathy and kindness. Because if this is the best place to work, that's a competitive advantage that was sort of built into your DNA here, but has now sort of become the thing that you're known for as a corporation. And and it's that that's made others better. It could be. I, I do think that's interesting that that's that you say that may, we may even know more for our culture than for our value prop. Um, <laughs> that certainly wasn't our intention, but it's interesting. I would, I guess I would say the culture thing and the employee thing. Yeah, we've always been focused on it and we think it's the right thing to do because we really want to impact the lives of our employees in a very positive way. As just a raw-blooded capitalist, though, I think the equation's changed on that. Like, if, if you look at the economy today or even the last few years, you know, in an industry like ours or yours, the unemployment rate is effectively zero. If you're trying to hire developers, like a developer here in Boston, they can come to work for HubSpot, they can start their own company. There's a million big companies they could work for. There's a million startups. And so just as you raw-blooded capitalists, we need developers. We need thousands of them to build awesome products and we need the best in the world built in HubSpot. And so what we think about is just as a rational economic actor, how do we not only create a great product that's unique in the marketplace that'll pull customers in, but how do we create a unique culture that's unique in the market that's super valuable that'll attract developers and we'll keep them around forever and make them very sticky. And so I think it behooves almost any company, particularly in today's economy, where almost everything is a service-based economy in the United States these days, the manufacturing economy is really shrinking. Uh, there's a big recession in the manufacturing economy. It's the service-based economy that's booming, that you need to be able to track the best and the brightest and retain them. And if your value prop to employees isn't unique, not only powerful and good, but unique relative to your competitors in your region, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. It's going to be very hard to scale your company. That do you, may do you not think you've created true. some pressure here in particular? We might have. I don't know. I don't ask other companies. Um, but I have a feeling that pretty much every potential employee that applies at HubSpot or joins HubSpot looks at those Glassdoor reviews. And you'd be crazy not to in today's day and age. It's like going to a restaurant and just like throwing something at the dartboard and saying, well, I don't know what's this good restaurant. I'm at least going to ask the concierge maybe look at Yelp or any of the myriad of sites that track that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're super proud that we were number one this year and we work very hard at that. I suspect other companies in the region that are competing with us for talent are looking at that same thing. And I think Glassdoor has had a big impact and we definitely push the boundaries on Boston and everywhere we recruit that we want to make the employee experience as good as we can. I would also say a lot of people think, well, you're ranked number one because you've got, you know, ping pong tables and you let people take naps and your dogs come into the office and stuff like that. I actually don't think that's got anything to do with building a great culture or being ranked high. I think the things that people like about HubSpot is we're very mission driven around this grow better idea. We treat our customers well, we treat our employees well, we pay fairly. I think it's more around some of that we make reasonable, rational decisions that we explain in a very transparent way. And sometimes we make decisions the employees don't like. Sometimes we make the, uh, decisions the employees like. When we make decisions they don't like, we explain why we made the decisions and we try to be super transparent so at least they see why. 
I think the transparency has benefited us a lot. We started as being very transparent about really everything. And I think, I think people appreciate that. I just think the internet generation, people, people who use the internet, and it doesn't matter how old you are these days, they just expect transparency. And, uh, and I, think that, I think every organization just needs to up that transparency. I think if you were transparent with your employees, they'll reward that transparency with great behavior. I heard you mention in another interview that, that you feel that there's a cultural uh, shift happening even in Silicon Valley at the moment. Like that when you started out, when you, were, you and Darmesh were looking for money, that it was, it was tough and it was an uphill climb and it was cutthroat and what have you. And you've noticed that the CEOs today seem to be trending in also a, a kinder, more collaborative way. You think that, that is a, that's here to stay or do you think that's a, an of the moment thing? I think, uh, oh, I don't know. I hope it's here to stay. If you look at the who were CEOs of the tech companies in the 90s, it was a sharp-elbowed, a rough-and-tumble crew, including like the Bill Gates of the world, who I have tremendous admiration for. Like He had some sharp elbows. Um, and Larry Ellison is like a whole crew of them. The current generation, particularly the ones that have taken over CEO roles, are different breed altogether, like Satya who runs uh, Microsoft and Dara that runs Uber and gentleman who runs Google and the gentleman who runs Adobe. None of them are founder CEOs. They're all CEOs brought in from the outside. None of them are salespeople by DNA, which is interesting. They're all brown, which is interesting, I find. And they're all sort of kinder, gentler, more transparent folks. Uh, I think that trend is fascinating what's gone on today. If you look at the profile of a CEO today versus 20 years ago in tech, they're very, very different. So a couple uh, more questions before we leave you. It's probably a great lead into something we're hearing a lot about uh, as a partner of HubSpot, uh, and that's your diversity, inclusion, and belonging initiative. But it's not new. This is something that you've been actively working toward and working on for several years. But it seems to us from, uh, again, from the outside inside perspective that it's reached a little bit of a tipping point and that you're beginning to catch a real rhythm and define what you want this program to be. Can you talk a little bit about this journey and even though it's never done, kind of where you feel you're at with it today? Yeah, I would say this was one of our biggest weaknesses over our first uh, seven, eight years. Uh, we started HubSpot, our first 10 employees were friends of ours from business school and we all look, we all looked alike. Uh, and then we just weren't paying enough attention to it. And then they were hiring their friends. The next thing you know, you know, we got a hundred people. And if you're a black woman and coming in to interview with HubSpot, it wasn't all white men, but it was way too many men and way too white. And you're just like, this is not my tribe. And we, oh, we got our eyes open to it uh, in a big way. And it's like, we got to do something about this. The problem is when you start that way and you're 100, 100, 200, 300 employees in, you're in a hole and it's hard to dig out of that hole for exactly that, for example, black woman who comes in and interviews. And so you have to be pretty aggressive to try to fix it. And so we put a series of programs in place that took a while to work, some of which are working pretty well now. And we've made real good progress. One of the, the metric I'm most proud of is if you looked at us three years ago, I might have the exact dates wrong, 22% uh, of our managers were women and 47% of our employees were women. Something's wrong there. 
And we're like, this is ridiculous. And we just put in some new policies and now we're at parity, the same number of female percentage of female uh, managers as female employees. I think it's 47 to 47, maybe 48 and 48. So that's, that's been something we've, uh, we made some progress on. Made some progress on the board uh, where the diversity is really strong there. Made some progress on my senior team, two women, uh, two people of color on my senior team. So we're starting to make some progress. We do have a lot more work to do, but uh, making some progress. So let's hit a couple of um, rapid fires. Right now, today, the company that you most admire? Patagonia. Why? Because I'm a victim of what I most recently read. (laughs) (laughs) I just finished reading Yvonne Chouinard's book, and I just admire him personally, how mission-driven he is, how he builds product. Uh, I I think it's a really, really cool, really cool company. In a sentence or two, describe Darmesh. Oh, um, very unusual fellow. Uh, he's unusually bright. He's unusually big hearted. He has ginormous strengths and ginormous weaknesses. And the thing about him, he's very self-aware of those strengths, very self-aware of those weaknesses. And he's, he and I have crafted his work to take full advantage of the strengths and manage the weaknesses. Yeah, he's been a great partner. We have, we, I think I got very lucky there. Your most enduring lesson from the Grateful Dead? <laughs> uh, I think the most enduring lesson is conventional wisdom's overrated. In everything they did, they ignored the traditional playbook that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the every other band did, and they rethought it on the musical side, on the equipment side, on the ticket sales side, on the content side, on you just name it. Um, they felt like Conventional wisdom was overrated and experts are overrated. And I kind of feel the same way about HubSpot more and more times when we buck the trend. It's worked out pretty well. Okay. Last thing. Yes, sir. This is a handshake deal. Okay. So I know you're a big Red Sox fan. I'm a, I'm a diehard Mets fan. If we're lucky enough to have a repeat of 86, 86. and face one another in the World <laughs> Series, can we shake that we treat the other to a respective home game? Sure. Done. I love it. Done. I don't think it's going to happen for a while. I don't think it's going to happen for a while. Brian Halligan, co-founder and CEO of HubSpot, one of the most admired uh, CEOs uh, in the world and certainly one of the most admired and most progressive uh, tech companies in the world. Thank you for joining us here today on Grow for Good. If you enjoyed the show, like us, uh, rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and certainly share us. Brian, thanks again for your time today. Thanks for having me. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.